Welcome to The Reading Room. This is Room 20. On this programme, we talk to performance poet and Latitude Festival programmer Luke Wright. A hate of mine is the way these spoken word poets seem to write a huge number of poems about being a poet. It's just so dull. Our short story comes from the author of Flick, Abigail Tartellin. Your friends, all square black trim glasses and rolled up trouser legs, laugh chaotically, drunk and enviably thin, all touching ages their beautiful faces have yet to reach. We have more poetry from Andrew Golding and Jamie Mackay brings us his musings of a muddled mind. Hello, this is Tracy Borman. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren FM. Four Talent Award winner Luke Wright has been described as the hardest working man in poetry. Since 2006, he's launched his own curveball bid to become Poet Laureate, programmed and hosted Latitude's Poetry Arena, and has become one of the poets in residence on BBC Radio 4's Saturday Live. As well as touring and publishing books, he's most recently released a spoken word album titled We're All In This Together. And before we bring you our interview with Luke, this is a track from that album, The Ballad of Fat Josh. Fat Josh, his forehead drip with lard. His manner blunt as bricks. He led a gang of burly boys with swear words on their lips. An appetite for violence and a bigger one for chips. They hung around outside the school, collective gutter mints. They yelled and burped and hucked up phlegm and largely caused offence. They'd rob pizza delivery boys, then eat the evidence. At school, they roamed the playing fields or loitered in the bogs. On weekends, they set fire to stuff and idly tortured dogs. And holidays, much the same, except they ate the dogs. Each meal, a cornucopia of additives and fat. Of drinks that turn your feces red and meat that tastes of sprat. Oh, food! Reconstituted food. Oh, food not fit for cats. And in this way... Fat Josh remained near 18 stone and cruel, an acnead sumo Al Capone, complete with power tools. Untouchable, that was until a new girl came to school. See, Polly Smith was beautiful, so charming, kind and funny. When Polly walked into the room, the room felt really sunny, and every time she clip-clopped past, Fat Josh sucked in his tummy. Until, one day, he bit the bullet. Swallowed the bullet. Scoffed the rest of the pack. He spat into his beefy hand and slicked his hair right back. He walked straight up to Polly Smith and he gave her a bummer smack. I choose you as my bird, said Josh, in breathy onion size. Polly smoothed her school skirt down and trying not to cry, replied with perfect diction. Why, Josh, I'd rather die. With callous, girlish laughter still ringing in his ears, a heart that felt as if it had been pierced by poison spears, fat Josh retraced his steps back home and struggled with his tears through long, dark evenings of the soul, his bedroom deadly quiet, until the answer dawned on him, till Josh could not deny it, two words that filled his heart with dread, exercise and diet. He wheezed his way through treadmill days. He panted on the bikes. He decommissioned his remotes and went on ten-mile hikes, then cried and gnawed his sausage hands when hunger came to strike. For those who followed diets know that KFC's invalid. Things like no-bread sandwiches will only leave you pallid. Love can do some awful things, but few as bad as salad. And so... 
The August days rolled by. The teachers took a break and munched upon their five a day at festivals and fates until one September day there was a stirring at the gate. Slack, jaws were hanging southward. Cries of who the hell is that? Familiar grimace on the face, the belly strangely flat. Oh my days, it is it is it's fat Josh, only like he ain't fat. The arms were toned, the chest was ripped, the shoulders three foot wide, with chiselled cheeks and tree-like thighs that gave a John Wayne stride. He stalked across the plain fields and stood at Polly's side, grinning, puffing out his chest like he'd just won a fight. You thought I'd never do it, Pole. His voice shot through a spite. He spat words like bulimia. You're out with me tonight. You stupid meathead! Polly yelled, which took him by surprise. Your belly never bothered me. In fact, I like fat guys, so I've got this thing for muffin tops. It's just dickheads that I despise. So, once again, Fat Josh retreated, knocked around and beat, a moral forming in his head, which I shall now repeat. You have to change your attitude, not just the things you eat. The Ballad of Fat Josh, taken from Luke Wright's spoken word album, We're All In This Together. I spoke to Luke on the telephone recently and started by asking how he became one of the poets in residence on BBC Radio 4's Saturday Live. When it first started, I sent them an email and said, oh, you know, I reckon I could do this and didn't hear anything back for a couple of years. And then um, I don't quite know how it happened. It's all, of, you know, this is just typical Radio 4, it's all a bit shady. Someone spoke to someone, who spoke to someone, spoke to someone. And eventually I got a call saying, oh, would you like to come in and meet the team and maybe you could come and do some stuff? And it was all a bit slow and tentative. And at the time, they only had, they had four people they used regularly. So I went in and did my first one in May 2008 and it went well and um, they've had me back ever since. Just picking on something you said there, you know, I, I could do that, I could have a go at that. It does seem that you, you do have your fingers in, in pretty much all the, all the pies or the accesses you, you could possibly go down. Uh, I mean, from the poets that we've met, they, they generally either write poems and, and, and want to be published in a book and then occasionally go out and read those. Uh, but you seem to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, down the performance line, bringing out an album, uh, you do a pamphlet, looking at uh, videos and uh, all forms of media and a blog. Around writing poetry and, and not even spoken word, you know, like poems that, that rhyme and scan and things like that. And um, I guess it's all just sort of built up gradually. I saw I saw Johnny Clark and Martin Newell perform when I was 16, and at that point I was just, wow, there's a man on stage, you know, doing poems and making people laugh and just looking cool. And I kind of I wanted to do that, and I didn't really think very deeply about it or you know or about poetry as such. And as I, as I've gone along. Um, I needed to initially find ways of trying to make that work as a job. So, you know, I went down to sort of the Edinburgh Fringe route, you know, taking a show to Edinburgh and then touring around arts centres and theatres, and that kind of worked out. And as time's gone on, I've been become more concerned about getting the poems to work on the page. I mean, I, th- I think my stuff will always be sonorous and, um, and, and sound good read aloud, you know, and that's the sort of kind of poetry I'm interested in. But I'm much more interested in poetry now than I was when I was 16. And I'm interested in different styles. And so, you know, sometimes the page is, is, is the best uh, best medium for those. Yeah, and you say they're rhyme and scan. I mean, do you, do you ever find yourself restricted or frustrated by, by writing things that you, you know, that you must feel rhymes and scans all the time? When you're confined, it, it forces your creativity into new places. Uh, the Ulipo believe that, you know, the, the more constraints you place in the work, the more true it becomes because you, you're forced to mine some deeper part of your subconscious. I think that's kind of a neat theory to fit there. They're, they're weird little literary games they play, but I think there's some truth in it. Um, I think some of the most interesting things I've written have come from being forced to look somewhere I otherwise wouldn't have done. 
because because the rhyme or the meter is dictating it, and that's half the fun to me. It's all about battling the uh, the form, and I love that. I really love it. And have you ever been beaten by a poem? Yeah, yeah, but or, or, you know, or you go down paths that really lead, lead to nowhere but misery. So you have to come back again. And I think I think making those decisions about sort of you know abandoning a certain route. All part parcel of being a good poet, really. But um, often those compromises can be better than what you originally had in mind. Uh, and what I really like about it is is that you're making a living out of this. You know, you're not having to work in a factory. You're you're making art and you're making a living out of it. I mean, how how difficult is that? You know, knowing you've got to pay the bills from this. It is difficult, but at, you know, at the same time, I don't get paid to be a poet. No one does. Everyone has a day job alongside that. My day job just happens to be performing my poetry. And, and running workshops, so it's really closely related to my poetry, you know, uh, it's interconnected, but I couldn't make a living just from writing, I couldn't from just writing the poems, I'd have to be writing a hell of a lot of commissions for that, yeah. and uh, I don't think I'd really want to write that many commissions, but you know, I, I love the, the adventure of being out on the road, and I love performing, and I think there's a, there's a real there's a real art to performing as well, and it's something that I'm, I'm, I get better at with every passing year, and it's something that I therefore enjoy more. So, looking at the performance, uh, what amazes me is, is is the memorising of it. I mean, how much rehearsal goes into that? Not a great deal, actually. I don't know if that's to sound cocky, but... Uh, no, no, but I mean, because you've written it, I mean, it, it's there. Because you've it? written it, it's there. I mean, the longest thing I've ever written was the, the Vala Centre of Lucien Gore and what the people did, which is a sort of 20-page poem uh, in Ottawa Rima. So it's tightly, tightly rhymed. It's A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C, and it's, you know, it's an iron-bit pentameter. And by the time I'd finished it, I already knew the first half off by heart just from reading it you know uh, I'm I do that a lot when I'm when I'm writing I, I read back aloud, aloud to myself sometimes more than I should because it kind of just slows me down even more but it's it's really good for sort of you know understanding the poem and kind of knowing where you are with the poem and just from reading it out loud it sort of imprints itself in my in my head when things rhyme and, and they scan then then they're easier to learn and that's why rhyme was invented to help people remember things I mean my, my looking at it was I thought well you know if you lose your way there you can't ad lib like you know maybe a stand-up comedian could you know no. so it's a much harder discipline and certainly especially when everything's when everything is quite formal as well i mean in, in the old days when i was sort of writing in very loose of tetrameter <laughs> then you know you, if you've kind of forgot a line you could just sort of fudge it but now you know it's much more noticeable it is and and you're also the uh, event programmer for the latitude festival and uh, over is it over 60 poets over the weekend yeah around that yeah which is you know quite a big task and i i, I work with tanya harrison from festival republic we work out headliners and special events together uh, and often she will go through the tricky business of dealing with difficult managers and agents for <laughs> guys. and then I, I she gives me free reign to pr- put the rest of the program together myself which is great but also means that you know I spend you know the first sort of three months of the year being inundated with emails from people and I have to inevitably disappoint people which is it is never easy and, and it, it does create some resentment somewhere which is you know always a shame because you know, obviously, I can't book everyone. I try and I try and keep it new. Yeah, I'd say probably about half of our program every year is new, um, and then people don't generally do more than about two or three times, and then I sort of refresh it and yeah. keep it new. But it's it's hard. It's hard to try and keep everyone happy. And, but you know, that's good. I mean, that's a nice problem to have because it means that we've got you know a great great pool of talent to choose from. But look, I mean, looking ahead to the future, what what is there? I mean, I mean, it looks you've obviously achieved a huge amount. What is there left to achieve? Where where are you going next? I'm very fortunate that I've been able to um, make a living out of doing what, what I do and been able to pretty much write about what I want to and, and find a way of making it work and find an audience for that. But I think there's, a, there's an awful lot to be done. I mean, my first full collection is not yet published. I'm talking to publishers now and trying to work out 
where will be the best place to do it, whether to whether to go somewhere or do it myself. And then I guess there's there's a lot more to write really, and that's that's the real battle. And I, I hope just to be, to be able to continue touring around and um, playing to uh, you know not tiny crowds. You know? <laughs> yeah. so, um, it, it would give me freedom to do do a tour in the in, you know in springtime and then. Um, you know, spend the rest of the year kind of writing and playing around with little projects and, you know, doing what sort of keeps my interest, you know. Yeah. And um, I think that's what we all want, isn't it? You know, it's sort of enough of an income to not have to worry about it and then you can kind of uh, just sort of play and um, and let your creativity kind of... Um, I, sort of, I hate talking about my creativity. People <laughs> talk about their creativity. I, mean, I, I don't really think of it as a separate entity. But, I mean, I just, you know, as long as I can keep doing things that interest me, really. PJ Harvey was once talking, trying to uh, demonstrate, you know, the, 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 the writing process. And to me, she, uh, she summed it up perfectly when she said, it's just like breathing. You know, there's not a separate entity. It's what she does. And it certainly seems to me that uh, poetry is what you do. It, you know, it, it seems to breathe yeah. from, from your every being. Yeah, but at the same time, what's behind that is in, you have to have something behind that. You have to have a life. You have to have other interests outside of poetry. Otherwise, you end up you end up being like these bands who write about being in bands, and it's just it's <laughs> very dull. And actually, the thing I hate of mine is the way particularly spoken word poets and performance poets just seem to write a huge number of poems about being a poet, you know, and and their lyrical dexterity and stuff like that. And it just it's just so dull. Um, it'd be really great when performance poetry can get beyond having to be sort of a, a walking advert for itself. Yeah, or, or even apologising for itself, perhaps, do you think? There's a little bit of that as well. But I think a lot of that's done kind of... You, you go to some of the gigs now and you kind of think this, this, it's really genuinely exhilarating just how many good gigs there are out there and people... You know, I just did, a, just did, I, I did Apples and Snakes gig. In, uh, in Birmingham on Thursday night. Probably about 65, 70 people in the room. People were sitting on the floor, everyone was crowding around. They, you know, everyone listened for two and a half hours and it was a young audience as well. And I just remember thinking, this is this is great. This is something that people do. And obviously it's something that I've done in the past, but I've always done it with a view to, to being a poet. And you know, the first gig I ever went to, I was like, right, I want to do this. And the, the next gig I went to, I, I was performing that. Um, so I didn't really have a long time as, as an audience member. Um, and I remember just looking around the room and thinking how, how great it was that people were out. You know, that was something they were doing with their, with their first evening. They were going to go watch a bit of poetry, and, and that's brilliant. And that says an awful lot about us as a society, a very positive thing about us as a society, that that, that sort of thing happens. Yes, yeah, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom, is it? <laughs> it's not all doom and gloom. No, it's not. Oh, thanks to Luke right there. And it has to be said, since researching that interview, I've become a big fan of Luke's work, and I definitely recommend a visit to lukewright.co.uk and take a look through the many mediums he uses to share his poetry. And of course, we'll be linking that from our website, readingroom.podbean.com. The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die. James Walker, the literature editor of Left Lion, would like to nominate Saturday Night and Sunday Morning by Alan Silito, as the defiant, rebellious Arthur Seaton is a reminder to us all that authority is something that has to be earned rather than a given. This seems more prescient now than ever given the hacking scandal, banking crisis and the issues raised by the Occupy movement in the light of widespread corruption. Our thanks to James Walker and you can link to the left line from the Reading Room podcast homepage, readingroom.podbean.com. And if you'd like to nominate a book to our ever-growing list, then please email us readingroom at sirenonline.com. Now it's time for the Reading Room Tea Break story, which this month comes from actress and author Abigail Tartellin. Alexei has this sadness about him, and you don't know why. He clowns around too desperately like he's missing something and knows, and sits down like a machine turned off, gear by gear. You look at his face, 
and you see an old man and a young child living in the same body. If you don't look too hard, he's just a normal kid of 20, but then you get closer and you see. He talks too little and smokes too much. You're at a dinner party in Silver Lake. The host is gorgeous and gay and is saying to your friend who brought you along with him that he's lost five pounds. Oh my God, exclaims your friend Grant, the editor who lives with Grant, the screenwriter who he found on the internet. I'm so jealous. I'm meant to be the pretty one. Don't you get ahead of me? Your friends, all square black trim glasses and rolled up trouser legs, laugh chaotically, drunk and enviably thin, all touching ages their beautiful faces have yet to reach. Dinner is served and it's pesto beef with Moroccan couscous and hot beetroot. Somewhere along the way, all these successful people became accomplished cooks and you wonder whether this is an indication of well-moneyed parents. You drift in and out of the living room onto the roof terrace. Nick, a brunette in from Iowa, designs applications for Apple and his business partner, Julian, effeminate but straight, chats you up with his designs for a private jet but won't tell you who it's for. You lose interest quickly while everyone else begs for the name. Dessert is placed in front of you and you pass it down the table until everyone has a bowl of homemade apple and cinnamon tart with clotted cream ice cream. Indulgence, says Grant, and the host smiles and says, eat up, I'm going to gain on you. Everyone is talking and then for a minute no one is talking to you and you look into the next room and you sense something. So you get up and you don't have to excuse yourself. The aeroplane guy winks at you and you smile back blandly, but that's it. You look into that room which is half dark with shadows. You don't see one retreating, but you have that same feeling, that there was someone in the room and they've just stepped out. Like when you woke in the night and you thought Alexei was gone, only to find him standing just outside the screen door smoking politely. His face is always tilted to the floor and he looks at you nervously. You wonder why, but you couldn't bring yourself to ask and now it's too late. You're starting to get that feeling a lot. It happened the other day at home and you walked through the rooms getting faster like you were chasing him. In the last, you dared to ask Alexei and the silence that replied seemed to fill the room and you knew it wasn't a normal passive silence, but a silence that was answering you. That night you touched the pillow beside you and woke suddenly and you thought you saw as you opened your eyes a mist of smoke shaped like a man dissipate in an instant. You remembered how he was so thin but at first you hadn't realised because you knew him better naked than clothed. Not one inch of fat but tight-toned muscle even in his legs. His hair was shorn like one of those kids they call little tykes who were left out in the street to play and they steal things and have bruises on their faces and you read in the fresh purple and faded yellow that they're unloved. But you never mention this to Alexei because you always thought it might be too close to the truth. You met 13 years ago in a karaoke bar. Alexei was sober and silently forward and you were always falling in love with strangers. He had a tattoo of a chicken and a clock on his leg. When you asked him why, he said, not missing a beat, why not, man? And that was it. You didn't know, but if you'd told him I love you, he might have stayed, but you didn't, and you walked away, thinking, how romantic. Ships passing in the night, never to meet again. You closed your hotel room door and woke up the next morning, thinking, crap, I never got his number, I'm such an idiot. When the phone in your room rang four times at 3am the next morning and didn't connect properly, you dialed zero for reception, worrying that it was your mother back in England, and the security guard on the night shift picked up. Yeah, there was a spate of calls to your room like five minutes ago. Was it a man or a woman? Man. American or English? American. There was this guy driving around outside in a beat-up black Thunderbird with the driver's window smashed in. I think he was the one calling. He said he'd be outside for about half an hour if you want to come down, but he didn't want to leave his name. I asked the last time because I was getting suspicious. It's not anything I'm going to worry about, but you should be careful in case the managers think you're dealing drugs. You roll your eyes. Thank you, Americans. You ring off and pull on jeans and a white t-shirt. Your hair, long and its natural brown back then, is down and must from sleep. Jeans loose at your waist. Your hands brown, you neglect your underwear and belt. You always like to be natural and feel comfortable. 
in your experience, the guys you like, underdogs with angry fathers and good hearts, like this about you. You walk out front with bare feet and wait in the car park. You wait 15 minutes and a voice calls your name. You walk over to Alexei, closer, unsure what you're going to do, but then he kisses you, and it's the kind of kiss you fall into. So you let him pull you inside the car, and he looks you in the eye and everywhere else besides, and you know he's thinking of how much he likes you, and you like the honesty of it. He tells you that you're beautiful, and you don't know him, but it doesn't sound like a lie, and it doesn't sound like a bribe, so you tell him he's beautiful back. Now you are 34. Your name is Melanie and you're a singer in an alternative rock band that plays original songs and sometimes covers of Blondie and Joy Division tracks. On this particular late summer's eve, you are on stage at the Lysistrata, across London from where you live in Greenwich, murmuring, love, love will tear us apart again, into a greasy mic, unaware that Alexa is listening to the same song at exactly the same time, only for him it is 2pm and he is sitting, not for the first time, unmoving in his studio, murmuring those words without really thinking about what they mean because Alexei is not the type to waste away a good afternoon listening to sad songs and morosely indulging. Melanie, already drunk and swaying with the vapour of tainted cigarettes given off by the crowd, sings isolation in dulcet, persistent tones. Mother, I tried, please believe me. I'm doing the best that I can. In Franklin Village, Los Angeles, the speakers bear the same lyrics and their words and meanings awakening him from his stupor. Alexei stands. He crosses the wooden floor in three easy strides and pulls the stylus firmly from the record as the last two lines die in the air around him. I'm ashamed of the things I've been put through. I'm ashamed of the person I am. You, Melanie, think a lot about the young men that came and went from your arms and lips and life and legs. Alexei tries not to think at all. Sometimes that's just the way it is and it's not that he's forgotten you, but that he keeps you locked away, private and intimate and sincerely, somewhere inside his mind. And it's interesting the way in which this affects you both. You seem to know from a young age with a sort of unformed and wordless wisdom that a person must adopt from very early on a forceful and concentrated drive or risk the world chipping away at who you were and losing all the things that as a child, running on instinct with little outside influence to cloud your sense of self, you knew were so vital to your identity, your very being. You remain deliberate, so you look at your past and you learn from it, but you move on all the same. Alexei chooses to bury his dead, so he listens to music loud enough to fill the silences. He wore you and the others into muscle and sinew, and he now wears his hair long and scruffy and spiked up, because he used to know a girl who would rub her hands gently over his shaved head, and he never forgot the way those sad blue eyes used to look at him then, thoughtful and searing, like she could see right into his mind to all the secrets he had not told anyone, even to this day. Some people make foundations out of history, some wear their past like armour. Alexei is now 33, but looks oddly ageless. A string of tattoos, all bearing something to do with his home country, run up his arm. He has lived in California for 20 years and doesn't know who he is any longer. Loss is at the centre of his identity. He feels he has missed something important and does not know whose fault it was, but now he's reaching out for things he's not sure he wanted in the first place, and unlike most people, Alexei has never been set the example of asking for help from others in finding answers to his own problems. Simply put, as a child, when Alexei would ask for advice, no one listened or came to his aid. His infant brain judged this action futile, and Alexei thus failed to develop a coping mechanism most humans find so vital. He sits alone at his grafting table, boring the carbon point of a pencil into the soft wood, unaware that his frustration and loneliness stems from the simple incapacity to perform such a basic staple of communication. Alexei is thinking about giving up wheat. He has given up a lot of things since Melanie knew him, including smoking, chewing gum, hydrogenated fats, doing things in fives, carbonated drinks, cracking his knuckles, gelatin-based sweets and dairy products. He works out five times a week and goes hiking in the hills once every fortnight. 
He likes to watch the birds and remember his father, who taught him their names in Russian, and although he doesn't know them in English, Alexei likes to say them under his breath as he spots them on his climb. It makes him feel knowledgeable and sure, and at the same time small, a part of something bigger than himself, the natural world and the wilderness above Hollywood and the sprawling city. Alexei hasn't seen his father since he was 17. He thinks about why he never went back. He thinks about shame. He wonders what his father would think about him giving up wheat, whether he would be proud of his son's determined and increasingly systematic self-discipline, if he might realise that Alexei was diligently proving his self-control, even if it was step by dogged step, even if it was only to himself. The carbon tip of the pencil snaps, forcing the wood to crush on the tabletop. Alexei stands, fetches a small chicken wire bin, brushes the debris inside and sits again. He sharpens the pencil above the bin and turns, absent-mindedly, back to his work. The blank piece of paper seems to wait for him expectantly. He screws up his mouth and frowns. His memory has stabilised, no worse, no better for five years, but he can still only concentrate in short bursts. And he could swear even this little concentration is becoming cloudier, less lucid. The EKG disagrees. Alexei pulls his chair to the table and rests his left arm on the paper, then his head on his left arm, close to the page to best avoid distraction. His tongue pokes out between his teeth and his right hand steadily draws the outline of a woman's body, a piece commissioned by another artist for the home. Tracking his eyes back and forth from a nude picture of a woman to his drawing hand, Alexei creates a pale line sketch he will then base his pen and wash drawings upon, then his final design in his signature crayon. He will then scan the image into his Mac and manipulate the colours to create the most striking print possible and press it onto raised paper himself. Six months down the line, a Giglet run of a thousand copies of the image will be released through the Santa Monica Gallery where Alexei usually exhibits his work. He works for about an hour, creating three rough line drawings, each one more accurate than the last. On the third, while pressing heavy dark circles around the nude's breasts, Alexei feels a familiar longing, a pulse, which, comforting in its consistency, has not diminished over the years like so much has seemed to do, although its dual purpose has become clearer and more definable than in those messy early encounters. Everyone has their own needs. Most do it for comfort. But Alexei likes to lay his heavy head on a welcoming shoulder, to pull a warm soft body to his own cold hard one. Alexei puts down his pencil, glancing regrettably at the loose sheets of paper yet to be drawn upon, picks up his cell, and already thinking of sleeping, legs entangled close to the warmth of another human being, speed dials Elizabeth, a body piercer from Santa Barbara, who he has been dating for the last five months with little expectation that it will go anywhere, although Elizabeth, perhaps, would like more. Alexei, again, as always, doesn't like or know to ask. Melanie remembers how she watched him from between the slats of the closet, the dark lines forming on Alexei's back. Purple veins burst open to form black-red smears of coagulating blood as the belt hit strike after strike, and Alexei sat very still, his feet together, his legs bent and pulled up to his chest, his bare arms around them, his bare head bent down into his knees. From the angle he sat with the light behind him, she could just see the silhouette of his lips in the space between his chest and the curve of his thighs, just apart and moving, measuring short staccato breaths as the blows landed, and she wonders, 13 years later, as her heart begins to break and the tears fall silently down her face, why the people we love the most are unreachable, locked behind walls of shame and confusion, where the truth is a battle that cannot be fought, where confession is a border too bloody to be crossed, and where pain is not a concept to be wept about or a scene from fiction, but a sickness too vivid and undeniable to face.
Hello, this is Nikki Valentine. You're listening to The Reading Room. The Oyster A teenage oyster grew depressed with life under the sea and holed up in a darkened room proclaiming, Woe is me! His father told the oyster, Son, it's clear that you are thirsting for something more exciting and the world is full to bursting with wondrous things for you to do and sights you could be seeing. So get out there and live your life. The world's your human being. Our thanks to Andrew Golding with that poem, The Oyster. And Andrew is confirmed to be on the lineup for this year's Reading Room Live, which will take place on Saturday, the 12th of May, 2012, at the Lincoln Performing Arts Centre, which will be broadcast live on Siren 107.3. And we're also going to be recording for the podcast and videoing the event too. It's a two-hour spoken word extravaganza. Already confirmed, as we say, we have Andrew Golding, Abigail Tartellin, and the musings of a muddled mind master, Jamie Mackay. And at a recent production meeting, I've been persuaded to write something for the occasion too. And more performers are going to be added to the lineup next month, and we do have a very, very special guest planned. Tickets are available now from the LPAC website and are priced at an extraordinarily cheap £5. But buy them early because once we announce the special guest, then they're going to fly out of the door. Hi, I'm Richard Herring. Hello, this is Georgia Twynham. Hi, this is Mark Kermo. This is Tony Hawkes. This is Karen Maitland. This is Brandon Cleary. And you're listening to The Reading Room. The Reading Room. The Reading Room. On Siren 107.3 FM. Every month we like to let you know just how lucky you are. Uh, you think you've got problems, then please let me put you at ease, as Jamie Mackay brings us the musings of a muddled mind. In the olden days, when we were cavemen and Big Brother was only on once a year, getting up and going to work in the morning was so much simpler. The sun would come up, you'd put your caveman suit on, stick the kettle on, remember the kettle hasn't been invented yet, and then go out to work. Nowadays it's a miracle we even manage to leave the house without having an Arthur Fowler-type rocking chair breakdown and steal the Christmas club money. The alarm clock goes off, you spend five minutes checking the time on your phone to make sure it's the same time as the alarm clock, and stumble into the shower, grumbling like a goth Boris Johnson with a Bell's whiskey hangover. When you leave the bathroom, as you are halfway down the stairs, before you even set foot in the kitchen, you check your phone for text messages. Then you check your hotmail, check your work email, check Facebook, wishing people you never actually speak to and never intend to speak to a happy birthday smiley face lol. Check Twitter, check the online BBC news, even though you're actually listening to the actual real-life news on the real-life actual radio, just in case the news on the radio is a rather elaborate Matrix-style alternate reality. Check the weather on BBC, check the weather on the Met Office, listen to the weather on the news, and this is before you even leave the house. It wouldn't be so bad, but then you do it all over again 20 minutes later when you get to work. He is Jamie Mackay, so you don't have to be no more of that sort of thing next month. Thank you for listening to the Reading Room podcast. We're back with our next live show on Sunday the 4th of March at 10am, when we'll be reviewing Pantheon by Sam Bourne. See you then.